We continue this year in Navi Jewish history. The final chapter of the ten tribes of Israel we discussed in the last year how the kingdom of Ashur suddenly rose up to become the leading power on earth and it was this leading power Ashur that drove the ten tribes of Israel out into exile to be known as the ten lost tribes to this day. The kingdom of Asher became that great. The Gemara says in Gittin that the Jews are very special. They're very much beloved by Hashem. And of course Hashem would prefer to show favoritism, to shower kindness upon them. But if they misbehave and they must be punished, and punished by a different nation, then at least not to embarrass the Jews by having them suffer through a lowly type of nation, or a small army, where it would mean a disgrace and shame. So before, the Gemara says, before the time comes that the penalty is invoked upon the Jews, where they must be partially destroyed, where they must be driven out into exile, the nation that is chosen for that mission to deliver this penalty, that nation is first elevated, strengthened, and heightened to become a leading nation on earth. It would be at least an honor to be defeated by one that great. That's why Asher was an unknown factor. It was practically unknown. Yet for this purpose alone, Asher became a mighty empire stronger than all the ones that existed then. The Arab nations like Philistines, Aram, the Syrians, Egypt, all those paled away in comparison to Ashur, and not because Ashur was that good, that deserving. It was only because Ashur was the one fated to drive the Jews out into exile. This was the case of the ten tribes of Israel. They were driven out of their land, meant a large portion of Eretz Israel, and the, the method used by Asher was, in conquering nations, in order to ensure himself that there would be no subsequent revolt where the people would acquire their land back, he exiled the people in each country and moved them to a different section, a different land. So he changed, he kept on rotating the people. He'd move the victims from one land to a second, the one from the second land back to the first. But a person is not living on his own soil, on his own territory, he loses his morale. Now, this is what Asher did to all the countries he conquered. In fact, the Gemara says that for that reason, no country today can actually say that they are originally of a certain type, <clears throat> a certain background, because Asher at that time conquered the world and drove every nation out of its original basis. The only country that remained on its own land, strangely, was the, king, uh, the kingdom of Egypt. Only Egypt remained, so that today the Egyptians are ones who have lived on their land since the beginning of time. All others are strangers to the soil they exist on now. 
so that the Russians not only do not belong in Czechoslovakia, they don't even belong in Moscow either. Rachshimon. Now, what happened further was that when Ashur, the king of Ashur, drove the Jews out of Israel, meaning the, especially the capital, the capital was Shomron, Shomron, the capital of the ten tribes. Yerushalayim was the capital of the two tribes. But Shomron, the capital of the ten tribes, he drove them out. Instead, he brought in, in that place, he brought in the Kusim and the Bavlian, Babylonians and Kusim. He moved them, he moved them around like pawns. These people he brought in, the Kusim were a nation of idol worshippers, naturally. And so, they settled in Israel and they began their regular series of idol worship. Uh, the fact that the land was now becoming contaminated by this type of idol worship angered Hashem, and it resulted in a plague. This was a plague known as the plague of the lions. From out of the jungles, the forests came lions, and they would attack the human beings. They would attack the kusum. They would take captive children, they would kill them, they would attack adults, and the Kusim were petrified. Uh, this was brought to the attention of the king of Ashur, and he said it's obvious that the, the Hashem of the land of Israel is angered at the fact that they do not worship properly. Therefore, there must be steps taken to remedy this. The king of Ashur said, fine, we shall send a Kohen from the Jews to the land of Israel to teach to educate the Kusim as to how to worship the Hashem of Israel so that this threat would be removed. He sent the Kohen of the Jews to Israel. He taught them about worshiping Hashem. Now, the Torah says that the Kusim, because of the fear of the lions, began to worship Hashem. But at the same time, hiddenly, they still tried to use their wiles and tricks and schemes by keeping up their Avodazar, their idol worship. And that is why, if you recall, those with very brilliant minds recall learning the Gemara Chulun, the first few pages in Chulun, the Chulun deal with the Shechitas Kusim, whether a Kusi is allowed to slaughter the Shechitas Kosher, whether he's considered a Jew or not, and how ultimately we arrived at the final decision where it was said that the Kusim were not considered Jewish because they did not really convert. They converted out of the fear of lions they were not called Ger Tzedek, but Gere Arroyos, converts because of lions, that they were not sincere in their conversion, they were considered Goyim, therefore the Shechita is not kosher, what they slaughter is not kosher, their wine is treif, and they are the same as pagans, heathens. Now, Asher set his eyes towards Jerusalem. He had conquered everything, he needed now the final crowning glory, to go on to Jerusalem, the central city of the world, the holy land, the holy city. He sent his vast armies. When we speak of Ashur's armies, these would baffle the person's imagination. We cannot imagine even the vast number of soldiers, that divisions that Ashur commanded, because he drew upon a supply of armies from every corner of the world whom he mobilized to become part of his army. He sent his armies on to the land of the Jews, that is the two tribes, Malchus Yehuda, and he quickly captured all the cities except the one, the capital city, Yerushalayim, remained. 
Shloyim was a city with a solid wall, stone wall around it. This was difficult to capture, so he called upon Cheskiyahu to surrender. Cheskiyahu said, King Cheskiyahu, we come of course now to a new king of the Jews, King Cheskiyahu, the son of the last king of the tribes of Yehuda, the son of Achaz, we'll discuss him in a moment, sent a message to the king of Asher, impose any fine you wish, no matter how large an amount this is, I will pay it. And the king of Asher imposed a fine of hundreds of bushels of silver and gold, which King Cheskio paid as a fine to be let alone. This is the part where we find Asher eventually confronting the Jews. Now let's go back to discuss what we would call the actual hero of this entire chapter. King Cheskiyahu. Till now we have dealt with kings of the Jews, the ten tribes, most of them were evil, idol worshippers. Many of the kings of the two tribes, the two Shvatim, Yehuda and Yemen, Malchus Yehuda were also idol worshippers to a degree. Once in a while a good king arose. In this case we come now to an extreme exception. Extreme. Cheskiyahu, the son of Achaz, his father Achaz, if you recall, we discussed this case last, Achaz was an idol worshiper who spread idol worship throughout <coughs> the entire kingdom of Yehuda. He passed away, his son Cheskiyahu took over as king. Cheskiyahu was a young man of 25 when he became king, a direct descendant of King David. His first, and he ruled for a period of exactly 29 years. That means he passed away at the age of 54. We're going to see how rich a life he led as a king. One of the most fascinating stories of Hebrew history is that of King Cheskiyahu. Now, his first major act was to destroy every last vestige of idolatry among the Jews. This was his first act, to clear out completely any trace whatsoever of idol worship or of any type of idols. This, of course, would be normal. A lot of the kings tried it before him. Yomar says, however, he added one point to all this. Aside from the idols that existed, which he obliterated, erased completely, there was also a figurine of a copper snake. It was placed on a high pedestal, a very special copper snake, Nechash Hanachishis. I'm sure that the boys who learned Chulun have certainly forgotten what we learned about this. What we say now must be completely new. This copper snake was originally made by Moshe Rabbeinu. In the Chumash we find that when the Jews turned against Hashem, Hashem punished the Jews. During the time they were in the desert, He punished them with a makas nechoshim, plague of the snakes, poisonous snakes who attacked the Jews, and of course their attack was naturally fatal. The Jews finally came crying to Moshe Rabbeinu, regretting their acts and pleading for help. And Moshe Rabbeinu said, fine, in order to be saved from these snakes, even when you are bitten by this poison, he built a snake made of brilliant, shining copper and placed it on a pedestal. As any person who is bitten by a poisonous snake, just gaze at this copper snake, you'll be cured immediately. This was the snake made by Moshe Rabbeinu, which was the remedy, the cure, for the plague of the snakes. 
with a bite of a poison snake. What was the reason for building this snake of copper? The message was, I know Shabbeinu, from heaven, know that it is not the snake, the snake bite that kills. It's not the snake that kills, it is the sin that kills. Those who die did not die because of the snakes, they died because of their sins. And proof is, here you have a snake, also, a snake of copper, and the same symbol of a snake can cure against snake bite. The message here was more than that. The message was, as the Benadol says, that a person who suffers at times attributes the reason for his suffering to a false address. For example, a person has a business, a flourishing, thriving business, and then suddenly he finds that business becomes slow. They had lost some money during the year, and they study the charts to discover the reason, and they say, well, we have given too much charity this year, we could not afford to do that, we will have to cut down on the amount of stucker for the coming year. This will help to balance our losses. This is as futile, as ridiculous, as a person in a boat that must be bailed out, there's water, they've got to throw some of the excess baggage overboard, and they throw the oxygen overboard, they throw the captain overboard, they throw the steering wheel overboard to lighten the load of the boat. Here, the one thing that sustains a business, sustains life, is the tzedakah, the charity that is given. Why don't they look for the true reason? In a word that Abenazel says, do not blame your mitzvahs for anything that happens to you, anything bad that happens. Blame the sins. A very famous case where a person had gone to a cold mikveh before Yom Kippur, and he came out and later he caught cold. He suffered from a very serious cold. And he said, this is the mikveh that caused this cold. My fever is due to the mikveh. The Benadol said, you fool, it's not the mikveh that causes the cold. It's the sins that cause your sickness. Mikveh is a cure. So look to the true cause, the sins, and not the mitzvahs. Now here, in this case, Hashemina said to them, the message here is, don't blame these snakes. These snakes are only messengers by Hashem sent to punish you for your sins. If you want to eliminate the snakes, eliminate your false beliefs. Look at the, the copper snake as a symbol that the snake is powerless in doing any harm. Return to faith in Hashem and you'll be saved from this type of punishment, this type of suffering. So what was the result? The result was that this copper snake was considered something very valuable. It was a memory of a miracle that transpired at the time of Moshe Rabbeinu. Because of this value, this sentimental value, the snake was kept, it was enshrined for a long period of time until it turned to evil. Because the people started to worship idols, they especially began to worship this copper snake as an idol. Early, there was a very paradoxical problem. Snake was something sacred, built by Moshe Rabbeinu. At the same time, there were people being misled into idol worship through it. So the former kings of the Jews, even the good ones, were afraid to touch the snake. How could they dare to destroy property, something originated by Moshe Rabbeinu for a good reason? Till Cheskiah Melech came along and showed his courage, he took the snake, this copper snake, and destroyed it 
completely. Elorah says he did something that was very controversial, yet the rabbis, the Sanhedrin, all agreed. They consented in that he had done something that was very righteous, very commendable. This was the last straw, the last item that was used as idol worship then, that from then on there was nothing but purity, holiness among the Jews. But this was not enough. Cheskiah Melech was outstanding for more than just this reason alone. Because King Cheskiahu, King Cheskiahu the Holy One, King Cheskiahu, the best of the Jewish kings since the time of King David, who will find was actually deeply beloved by Hashem, was outstanding in that he showed what a treasure the Torah was. He said the Torah is the word of Hashem, the Torah is the life of the Jew. Every person goes to a yeshiva, to a school where he learns the beginning of Torah. Each person learns Chumash, the five Chumashim history, but then you have very few that continue on to learn Gemara. And of those few, you have extremely few who ever go on to complete the Gemara. Gemara, all 60 volumes, or 63, are known as the Shas. The entire Shas, all the volumes of the Gemara, to complete that, you have relatively very few people who learn through that. Years before, of course, generations before, there were much more than we have today. But still, in ratio, very few people learn through Shas. These were generally the elders, the sages, who learned through Shas. The others were students who learned a little. At the time of Cheskiah HaMelech, he said, besides learning Chumash, Navi, besides learning the written Torah, I want it to be known that the Tzedah Shabbat Peh, the oral Torah, is the key to our life. We speak about Torah as the life of the Jew, we speak about the Gemara. And therefore, it is incumbent upon every single Jew to study the Gemara and to complete it and to know it. The Gemara was not in writing then. The Gemara was oral. Every Jew must know the entire Shas. There was never a time in history, ever, that they could take account of every single Jew alive, man, woman, women who are even exempt from the study of Gemara, and children, where everyone was tested and everyone knew the entire Shas. How do you go about, why can't we do it here? The answer is, we probably could if we used his method. He came to the base of Medrash, like here, right and forth, and he pulled out a sword and stuck it into the ground. And he said, this sword will behead any head that does not contain the knowledge of Shas, of Gemara. This was meant very seriously. Now, most of the heads, just about all of them, preferred to remain attached. And so they set about the task of memorizing, learning thoroughly, and knowing the Gemara. This was so pure a generation, the, the generation of Cheskiah HaMelech, that the Gemara says that in heaven itself there arose a controversy. Imagine an argument in heaven between Hashem and the angels. Hashem maintained, Hashem insisted and said, I'm going to, I want to pronounce, declare Cheskiah HaMelech as Moshiach. He is deserving of being the Moshiach because no king is as good as him. This is the Moshiach. 
Of course, this was before the time. Time was not ripe yet to Mashiach to come. So it was a desire in heaven to show the purity of Cheskiah HaMelech, but this desire was allayed, was postponed for the lead time of Mashiach's coming. But we see from here, though, the greatness, the purity of Cheskiah HaMelech, how great and outstanding a king he was, how unique, that at no time was there a generation like Cheskiah HaMelech. The Zayde Kodesh says, interesting to note, too, that who was the first to spread the knowledge of the heavenly secrets, the secrets of the Teda, the light of the Teda that was hidden, was kept inside the Teda. And he brought this light out. Oyer is the Aramaic Roz, Gimatria Roz, Oyer light, Roz secret. The secret light of the Teda was brought up by Hashem Yechoizal. And a statement was made in the Zayde Kodesh that the generation of Rabbi Shemim matched that of Cheskiah HaMelech. And therefore, in a sense, there's a slight hint, a daring hint to the fact that the same attempt was made in heaven to actually declare Rabbi Shemim the Moshiach too. Shemim stated too, very emphatically, that the generation living in his time will never be matched until Mashiach comes. Now, we come back to the story, the confrontation between the military might of Ashur and the one remaining fortress, the city of Yerushalayim, the city of Hashem, the holy city that was being besieged by the kingdom of Ashur. King of Asher, his name was Sanchedev, Sanchedev, who ruled the world, sent his general, commander-in-chief, for this task. His commander-in-chief was Rav Shokei. He sent him with a large army, Yerushalayim, there to demand the surrender of the Jews. He came before the wall of Yerushalayim, and standing on the wall to receive him were the three close officials of the king of Cheskiah Melech. These three were Eliakim, Yoach, and third, the most important, apparently was Shevna, Shevna the scribe. Remember that we're dealing with a generation again, who were very learned sages, great Tamidah Chachamim. One of the greatest then was this Shevna, who deliberately competed with Cheskiah Melech competed with him and said, I am going to show that I can open more branches, more yeshivas, than Cheskiah Melech. Now, they were faced by Rav Shokeh, the commanding general of Ashur. He began to speak in loud, very loud voice, very authoritative tone. He began to warn them about the fact that at this present time, the king of Ashur is in the midst of a battle, a war against Egypt, and the Kushim, and that when he would come back, then the Jews would have would have to face a very serious consequence. Therefore, he said, it would be advisable for you to surrender. Upon whom do you intend to rely? You intend to rely upon Egypt, that Egypt shall help you? Egypt is like relying on a, a stick 
person who's weak and wants to lean upon a stick and finds that the handle of the stick is a very sharp point. As he leans down upon it, instead of getting support, the sharp point cuts through and severs the palm of his hand rather than to support him. This is how much support you can get from Egypt. Are you going to rely upon Hashem? Well, Hashem has stated through his prophets to Ashur, go up against Israel, up against Jerusalem, and you shall destroy them. That last sentence he added on his own. Prophets did say to Ashur, go up against Israel, but the word you shall destroy them was a false addition by Rav Shokai. He spoke in a very degrading tone, and of course, this was meant to inject a deep fear and panic into the hearts of the Jews. So these three messengers of Cheskia Melech pleaded with Rav Shokai, please speak to us in your language, in Aramaic, that the people, the peasants, the laymen should not understand. We understand this foreign language, your language, Aramaic, do not speak in Hebrew. He continued, insisted upon speaking to them in Hebrew, and he said to them, again in the same loud tone of voice where all could hear him, do not allow Haskyo to persuade you to talk you into the fact that he will be able to help you. It is best, most advisable for you to make peace with Ashur. Live at peace with the king. He will lead you to a better land you'll have no fear of being wiped out. Now, look at the other countries, he said. Have the, the idols of the other countries, the other lands, saved them from Ashur? There's no country whose idols saved them, whose belief has saved them, whose faith had, was able to rescue them. How do you expect your, Mohavdil, your Hashem, to save you from one as powerful as the king of Ashur? Can he save Yerushalayim from this might? He used these very insulting type of terms against heaven. And Eskira Melech was told about this. He said to these messengers, go and report this to the prophet Yeshayahu. Tell him what Rav Shoke, commanding general of Asher, had said. He went and told it to Yeshayahu Navi. Meanwhile, this Shevna, the scribe, if you recall, it's a very big if. We had a lesson, a Shir in Gemara, many few months ago, many months ago. We dealt with this scribe, Shevna, who was very learned, big time with Chachman, a lot of yeshivas, but who had to possess more than knowledge, he possessed gaiva, haughtiness. He felt he was superior to Cheskiah Melach. And now he felt that the, the correct procedure would be to surrender to Asher. So he sent a message to the commander-in-chief, Rav Shoke, telling him that Cheskiah Melech will refuse to surrender. But I will bring all my followers who number more than the followers of Cheskiah Melech. I will bring them to you in surrender. So, he started out with his followers. Whatever he said, of course, went. Students follow their leader. He started out with them, and Cheskiah Melech became desperate because if he succeeds, Surely the Jews are lost. He cried out to Hashem. The Malach Gabriel came down. And as Shevna went along leading his followers, the angel let down an iron curtain that separated him from his followers. Came up against a solid wall. They could not move any further. 
And Shevna, this was done silently. Shevna thought they were still behind him. He didn't bother to turn around and look at, at these lowly people following him. He went straight to Rav Shoke and said with a flourish, Here I am, and here is... He turned around and said, Here are my vast vacuum. Rav Shoke said, Where? Where are your great number of followers you claim to have? He looked at in dismay and disbelief. Good question, he said. I'm glad you asked that question because I seem to have the same question myself. But obviously they have deserted me. They fooled me. They are disloyal to me. Avshoki said you came to mock me. Well, we have methods to deal with those who come to mock leaders of Ashur. He said to his soldiers, take some spikes and bore a hole through this man's feet through the soles of his feet. They did this, and they drew a rope through that. They attached this rope to the tails of wild horses, and they set these wild horses free to run over thorns and briars, and that's how, that was the punishment Shevna got for his rebellion against Feskiah Melach. Now, meanwhile, Yishayah Navi got the message from King, from King Cheskiah, the pleading for assistance, so he sent back a reply. The reply was, Hashem states, I have heard the derogatory, disgraceful remarks made by Rav Shoke. And I state, in prophecy, Shayo said, that he shall return to his land. Not just Rav Shoke, but the king, Sancheira, who has gone to battle against other countries now, is going to return to his land. And there, not in battle, but in his own country, in his own capital city of Ashur, is going to fall by the sword. So, Avshoke went back to report that his king had found that his king had gone into battle against Egypt and the Kushim, and he sent a message back to the Jews, do not think that we have forgotten you. We're going into war against the unmentionables, disgusting even to us, or coming back to deal with you eventually. We shall not forget. So again, he left his word, his threat, to the Jews and to Cheskiah Melech specifically. And then King Cheskiah turned to Hashem in tefillah, in prayer. He said, it is a fact that Sancherev, the king of Ashur, has been victorious throughout in all his battles. He has risen in might, has overcome the greatest of the nations with simple simplicity and ease. But we know that all battles are determined, are decided by Hashem, Hashem Ishmuchama. And therefore, he said, we believe in Hashem thoroughly. We pray to Hashem, we daven that Hashem should help us and should rescue us so that let all the nations know that Hashem alone is the king and ruler over the world. This was a very strong tefillah. The prophet Yishayahu said the message to Cheskyahu, know that Hashem has heard your tefillah, your prayer. Hashem has listened and Hashem has accepted. Hashem's message in return to Asher is, whom do you think you dared to insult, to use such terms, words, as comparing Hasbashalom, the true powers of heaven, to the others. 
How do you dare to place yourself above the power of heaven as stating that the, the determination of war and battle is in your hands? Therefore, you are going with the intention of attacking Yerushalayim. The statement from Hashem is that not one single arrow of yours will reach the city of Yerushalayim. For the sake of my beloved servant David HaMelech, King David, Eskyahu was king, but he was directly sent to have King David, to whom Hashem had promised that Yerushalayim will always be known as Ir David, the king of David HaMelech. And so finally the army of Rav Shokeh came to besiege the city of Yerushalayim, and they said this, they came there in the evening, and they said tomorrow morning we attack. Now, if you have been to Israel, Edith Yisrael, you can picture the city of Yerushalayim, especially the old city. Around it, you look at it from a distance, you see the mountains of Judea, Judean mountains. Ode Yehuda of Yerushalayim. These mountains, the area is so vast that you can have untold numbers of soldiers. We can say millions of soldiers. Because the Torah says that Rav Shokeh came with an army where he had 185,000 generals. Not officers, but 185,000 generals. Imagine the number of soldiers that assembled there to attack this tiny city of Yerushalayim. In fact, they snickered, they sneered, and they said, this is what we assembled so vast an army for. We could take this in a minute. We're so sure about it, instead of attacking now, we shall camp here for the night, and tomorrow morning early, we'll take it with one blow. This was the plan of Rav Shokeh and his followers. But these 185,000 generals were very dangerous characters. Dangerous to whom? Dangerous to Sancheirev, the king of Asher. Because these were all princes. How did they achieve a rank of general? They did not attend West Point. <laughs> they did not go to officer school. They did not go through combat to achieve this rank. They were all the sons of the kings of different nations throughout the world. Whom? The king of Ashus and Herod mobilized. And they volunteered their service as a condition to become the leaders of the army. So, of course, these were the, the apple of the eyes of the kings throughout the world. They expected that the king of Asher would take good care of, take good care of them and see that they are not hurt in battle. Have them in the background and the soldiers to go forward in the front. And what happened then was Hashem unleashed the fury, the anger of Hashem. That night Hashem fulfilled his promise that not one arrow of the kingdom of Asher would land in Yerushalayim. An angel came down from heaven while they were asleep. An angel came down, the angel Malach Amavis, and swept through this army where the 185,000 generals, princes, died in this plague in addition to the untold numbers of the, the Asherites, including Rav Shokeh, the commanding general. All of them died in that one plague that night. At that moment, Sancheirev happened to be coming by, and he was saved from this plague. Saved, of course, he could relate this miracle to the others. 
Now, having to relate this meant that he was in very hot water because he now had 185,000 kings who wanted his hide. Maybe a very powerful emperor if he has an army. His army was wiped out, among whom the princes of all nations he now stood ready for rebellion by all the nations on earth and no way to defend himself. This was the vengeance eked out from heaven. This was retribution. What happened then was that Sancheriv fled. The emperor, he came back to Nineveh, the capital city of Ashur. At this time, Ashur had dwindled to practically nothing. It was like a wind. It came, blew very big, became very large, rose high as an empire, the leading empire in the world, and now it sort of died out. So the kingdom, the king of Ashur came back to Nineveh, and he was desperate. How could he save his hide himself, and how could he return to the power he had before? Obviously, his downfall was due to the Hashem of the Jews. So he studied the situation, inquired as to what is special about the Jews. Why does Hashem favor the Jews? He was told because of the Avos Akdoshim, the fathers of the Jews, Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, what brought the devotion of Hashem to the Jews was the fact that the greatest sacrifice on earth that exists was the sacrifice of the willing sacrifice by Avraham in taking his son Yitzhak to the Akedah. This is what endeared the fathers of the Jews and the people, Jewish nation to Hashem. So Sancheirev said, very well. In that case then, if that's all it takes, I have a solution. So he went to, to he was prepared to make this same offer to his idol. The question of course is, what was Sancheirev's idol? A lot of idols in the world. He had a very special idol. He had discovered a treasure that was so great that he, he made this treasure into an idol. In the land of Ashur, there are mountains called Are Ararat, very famous name. These mountains of Ararat, those who have studied very deeply, very deeply, the beginning of the Chumash, is those who are let's say five years old approximately here, would know that the mountain of Ararat is famous because that is the mountain upon which the Ark of Noah settled. Noah's Ark settled on the mountains of Ararat, and there he left it. Now, in an expedition, Sennacher of the king of Ashur, going out to these mountains, had discovered the remains of Noah's Ark. Though it was so many years later, so many generations that he found the remains, he found a board of that ark. He made this board into an idol, placed it into his, his temple of worship, and he worshipped this board. No worse than a different idol. He came before this idol of his, he bowed down before it and said to this idol, a promise. This is a promise of, a, of an Asherite known as Assyrian, his promise, promised this idol that if he will be saved, and if he will be given back his power, then he will offer as a sacrifice to his idol not one, but both of his sons. He will slaughter both of his sons as a sacrifice to this idol. How about that one? Well, how about that? The trouble was that 
It just so happened that his two sons were in the temple at the time, hidden, and they overheard this promise by their father. So they said, we are faster than you, father dear. And they turned the tables, and at that spot they took out their swords, and said to the idol, you'd rather have pop than us. So they sacrificed their father, Sancherev, fulfilling the prophecy of Shayahu that the king would die by the sword in his own land in their temple. This was the end of Ashur, showing the fast rise and fall of a nation because of the, the lack of recognition that it was Hashem who had blessed them to these, come to these great heights. We continue the story of Cheskiel HaMelech, King Cheskiel showing his greatness.